be in chapter 18 as we continue in our series with uh, the kingdom parables. And we make a a pretty significant shift here as we've been in chapter 13 uh, from the start of the series and just some some notes to to remind you about where we've been. Uh, Chapter 13 in Matthew is unique for the, the, the amount of parables that Jesus gives on the kingdom. And um, he has been giving these parables in a way to answer the question that he's been getting up to this point. Who are you? Um, why do you do the things that you do? Both from those inside the church, as we might say, and those from outside the church. Uh, questioning who this person is. And so Jesus uh, shifts to this um, familiar teaching method of parable. Both to uh, reveal, but also conceal. To reveal that truth to those who have ears to hear and those who are willing to listen, those who are willing to receive him and what God is doing, but also to, in one sense, continue the, the uh, effect of concealing to those who don't want to listen, who don't uh, want to receive what God is doing. Uh, and so we've talked about that, and we've looked at how the kingdom comes through listening. We looked at um, aspects of the kingdom in various ways of how it grows and its pace and um, the, the hidden nature and power of it in ways. And so um, now we move out of this chapter. When we get to chapter 18, and just a little bit of context again before I read this, um, he is no longer speaking to the crowds. And so this is important for us to shift. He's speaking to his disciples. Actually, this whole parable comes out of a question that Peter, as you'll see, asks. And some have dubbed this the Sermon to the Congregation. And some of us are familiar with chapter 18 of Matthew, where we often go to when we talk about reconciliation and going to your brother or your sister if they have sinned against you. Um, There's several things like that, and you can kind of see how people would say that. He is instructing his disciples uh, on the ways of the kingdom again. Um, We could put it this way. He is talking to church folk. And I actually want us to have those ears this morning. If you are not a believer in this room— uh, there is plenty here for you, and I want to point you in that direction when we get there. But specifically for those who are Christians in this room, and even maybe more so those who are members of Wallace Presbyterian Church, this is a message to you. So let's have those ears to hear that this morning as Jesus gives us our next kingdom parable, beginning in chapter 18. I'll start reading in verse 21. Then Peter came up, and he said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down 
and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went up and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now and ask that you would graciously give us your spirit to open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not, that you would allow your word to sink into our hearts, that our hearts would be as good soil to receive that word and produce a fruit that we would leave here changed people. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Dramatic pause. Ernest Hemingway, in his short story, The Capital of the World, tells a story about a father and his young son who lived in Madrid, Spain. Their relationship, according to the story, became very tense and it eventually shattered. The young son ran away from home. And the father began this long journey in search of his lost son. Finally, he put an ad in the Madrid newspaper as a last resort when he couldn't find him. His son's name was Paco, a very common name in Spain. And the ad simply read this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. Son, I love you. Dad. The next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, there were more than 800 Pacos. All sons seeking forgiveness and love from their father. Love that story. Hemingway could write. Um, I do. I love everything about that story. There's so many things to pull from it. Um, And it's absolutely true. Absolutely, Absolutely true. We are all seeking forgiveness. Whether we're willing to admit it or not, we need it first and foremost from God himself. And Jesus and his kingdom is the pronouncement, right, that forgiveness is here. It's here. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what he has been saying. But what happens when you've received that forgiveness, that mercy, as a believer? What happens when you receive that? What happens when, when, when that gift, that treasure, so to speak, is given and you accept it and you would say, I, I, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian. Yes, it is grace that always brings us into this kingdom. It is grace that keeps us in this kingdom, I might add. But this parable actually tells us there's a responsibility that comes with that, that comes to Jesus' disciples as one who has received 
such grace, such treasure, such forgiveness. And what responsibility is that? Well, it's the responsibility to be imitators of God. It's the responsibility to reflect the very thing that you've been given to others. It's the responsibility to show mercy the way that you have been shown mercy. It is the responsibility to forgive as you have been forgiven. David Wenham writes this about this section. Jesus' disciples who have been found by Jesus the shepherd are themselves to be good shepherds. We found treasure last week, or should I say treasure found us. Now we look a little deeper at how kingdom treasure transforms us and what Jesus says is the way of his kingdom, the way of his disciples. And what Jesus simply says is this, because God loves forgiveness, you must love forgiveness too. Because God loves forgiveness, you must love forgiveness too. And I want to look at this in two acts, sort of acts of a play. Act one is because God loves forgiveness, he loves forgiveness more than you or I could ever fathom. That's act one. Act two, or point two if you, if you prefer, God loves forgiveness. God's love for forgiveness then must be reflected by his followers. God's love for forgiveness must be reflected in our lives towards others. So two points, two acts, however you want to receive that. What does that mean for us then? I'll look at that later. And, and what does it mean for us as a church as well? So let's take the first one, act one. God's lo God, God loves forgiveness more than we could fathom, more than we could understand. Uh, as I noted, this section begins with Peter uh, coming up to Jesus with a question. And in chapter 18, Jesus has just been talking about going to your brother or sister if they have sinned against you and confronting him, seeking his or her forgiveness and restoration. So Peter is perhaps thinking about this, and he asks a very logical question. Okay, I get it, right? But how many times are we to do this? <laughs> Right? How many times should I forgive my brother and sister if they continue to come up and sin against me? How many times? One, two, three, seven? To which Jesus says, no, seven, the seven, or 70, 70 times seven, sometimes your translation writes. In other words, an infinite amount of, time, amount of times, Peter. An infinite amount of times, Peter. There is no limit to what you are to offer people. You could say Jesus is saying, never stop offering forgiveness. Uh, Bruner, in his commentary, who I'll quote a lot from this morning, interprets this, this, this number as unlimited forgiveness, is what it says. And this is the kingdom ethic. This is the kingdom ethic for, for Jesus and his followers. Go then and do likewise. Now, why? Why would Jesus answer Peter's question like this? And the answer is because this is how your Father in heaven, your King, forgives you. This is how your Father in heaven forgives you. Not seven times, but every time. Not seven times, but a never stop, unlimited forgiveness type of forgiveness. This is why Jesus answered the question this way. But to teach this in a way that Peter and his disciples, and certainly us, would remember and understand, he tells them a parable, Act 1. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like, or may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, or to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This parable starts out with a calling to an account of what is owed. A calling 
to account of what is owed. In other words, this parable starts out with biblical judgment. The king is settling accounts, and he comes to a servant who owes him 10,000 talents, and he cannot pay. And why can't he pay? Because no one can pay 10,000 talents. All right, so this is actually a comedy at this point. This amount will set the tone for the entire parable. To say 10,000 talents is to say, I don't have a number higher to put down in the, on the scroll, so we're going to say 10,000 talents. When we're kids and we do all this back and forth with what you, know, you owe or how many, whatever, we usually say a zillion. I don't even know if that's a real number. Maybe it is, but we say it because we can't think of a bigger number. That's what 10,000 talents is. So they're hearing this, Peter's hearing this, and there's a little bit of like, that's ridiculous. And that's the point. This servant owes a debt that he could never pay in a thousand lifetimes. Did a little more math. So a denarii is one day's wage. If you have 10,000 talents, that's 6,000 denarii. Um, or one talent, sorry, one talent is 6,000 denarii. So if you, had, if you owe 10,000, right, this is going to be 60 million denarii. And if you work that out, it would take you 164,383 years if you made one day's wage every day of your life to pay that back. You get, you get the point, right? You get the point. You couldn't, you couldn't pay this back in a thousand lifetimes. Okay, so what happens? Verse 25, he did not have the money to pay it back. Shocker, okay? We got it. The king commands that he then and his family and everything to be sold and, and, and for him to be put in jail. In other words, what you owe, this is consistent with, 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 with the Bible, will cost you your life. Right? And of course, this is in terms of sin. Like the wages of sin are de is death. It costs you everything. This is justice, friends. As I just talked about the, the, the sort of comical amount that he owes, we might say, well, this is unfair. It is not. This is what he owes. And what, what, is, what are the wages of that? It's your life. Okay. Verse 26, at this time the servant, though, fell face down before him and he said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. A humble yet naive request. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. This is the way of the kingdom. Right? This, is, this is the grace we love. What cannot be paid is paid. Forgiveness for those who simply show up like Paco and receive it. And why? Because God the Father loves forgiveness more than we can fathom. More than 10,000 ta 10, talents worth, more than a zillion. This is how much God loves forgiveness. First, I would be remiss if I did not point out the Sermon on the Mount that is all throughout this parable. And I'm going to do that simply because it's somewhat fresh in our minds since we looked at it last fall. What do we see so far? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven because they know they owe something and beg for mercy. Only the poor in spirit do this. And that's what this servant does. And what's the response of God to the poor in spirit? Every time you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Once, twice, seven times, every time. You cannot deplete God's grace. Second, look at the threefold response, though, as we get a little deeper into this first act of the king. 
First, he had compassion on him, okay? This is really the word for bowels. It is to say the king felt it in his innermost parts. The bowels were actually thought to be the seat of love. This then is what, it, what it's communicating is strong emotion towards somebody. He, the king is moving in compassion towards this servant. That's what's happening here. Second, the king released him or literally set uh, at liberty. He was free to go. If we stop here, the king, it seems, is done, has done what the servant has asked for, to be patient with me and I will pay back everything. And letting him go, it might seem that the king then expects him to pay it back or at least is giving him an opportunity to do that. But this, as we might suspect, is a king that gives more than what? Than we could ever ask for. Which gets to the third part of this section, the king, what, forgave him alone. Literally, he sent the debt away. So through 27, or verse 27, right, we have a story that started out in judgment and has now turned to grace in the form of forgiving debt that could never, ever be repaid. Why? Because God loves forgiveness. Let me say it again. God loves forgiveness. And he loves it more than you and I can fathom. He loves it more than you and I will ever understand. He loves it more than we will ever believe about ourselves. This is act one. A couple of things before we move on. From the parable, you and I will always underestimate what we owe, which is to say we will underestimate our sin and what it deserves. I don't want to move over this point. We will underestimate what we owe, which is to say we will underestimate our sin and what it deserves. We are not aware of how bad we are, which is why a common summary of the gospel is you are far worse than you'll ever know. You never dreamed that you were or that you had a debt of a zillion. You never dreamed that you had a debt of 10,000 talents that could take, would take up to 100,000, whatever math I gave you, years to pay back. It's comical. It's not funny, but the point is to get our attention. You and I will always underestimate our sin. I'm not saying there aren't those that overestimate it. That's another conversation for another day, that Jesus can't forgive you. But for the most part, we walk blind through this world not thinking of, of the cost of our sin. I would say that for most of us, right, I'll point to myself included, my sin, the extent of my sin is, is, is the pet sins that I know I got to get rid of and maybe one or two habitual sins that I just can't seem to break free from. Other than that, things are pretty good. Underestimating our sin. Luke 7, the parable of two debtors, the one who is forgiven little and underestimates their sin, we might say loves little. That's the point of Jesus' parable there. The one who is forgiven much, though, knows something of the true debt of their sin, loves much. We will always underestimate our sin. Second, in spite of our being unaware of how bad we are, God is quick what to have compassion to release and forgive. Isn't that amazing? In spite of that, he is quick to have compassion, release, and forgive. In other words, to the question, can God really forgive me of what I've done? The answer is yes, a zillion times yes. Why? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's go back to that. Thirdly, forgiveness is costly. To forgive a debt such as this means that the king is out that money, and he is. He is truly going, if he's truly going to forgive it and send it away, as the text says, to do that, he must be willing to absorb that cost, which is what forgiveness is. And he does seemingly without hesitation. That is that great, co- great cost to himself, which means that, that to forgive, especially grievous sins, right, is actually always a form of personal suffering. Make no mistake about that. Your forgiveness to somebody, especially as it increases in its hurt and the grievousness of it, is an act of suffering on your part. To receive it, absorb it, ultimately to forgive it. This is why forgiveness is not forgetting. We've talked about this before. It is taking the hit and it is saying, in spite of what you have done to me or taken from me, I forgive you. And this is what God has done in Jesus Christ, is it not? It is not lost then on us this morning to note that the very one telling this parable at this point will be the one who will take the hit, who will suffer so that forgiveness might be truly given. And why does God do this? Because God loves forgiveness. And he loves it more than you can fathom. Also note, right, how precious that sacrifice must be to forgive that much debt. I digress. This is act one. God loves forgiveness more than we can fathom, more than we can understand. We start out with judgment. We end with grace. Beautiful, right? The curtain falls. The house lights come up. You feel good about yourself. I'm going to go to the concession stand and get some popcorn, get a refill of my drink, stretch my legs, go to the restroom. I can't wait for act two. This is exciting. I love this kingdom. Act two, God's love of forgiveness must be reflected in our lives towards others. Where does act two begin? Verse 28. Again, immediately following the forgiveness the servant was just shown, everything that we just talked about, right, the, the, the cost of it, um, un, beginning to, to sort of have an idea of our sin, and yet God's immediate action to say, I will take it. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. All right, well now, let's just talk about money again. That's like a hundred days Wages, that's certainly smaller than 10,000 talents. Not a small sum of money, but it could be worked, it could be definitely worked out and and paid back. So, smaller amount. Seizing him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. All right? For a second, you check where you're seated. You're wondering, "Am am I in the same theater, same playhouse that I wander into a different act here? All of us are wondering, that's the same guy who just was forgiven a zillion times, right? And that's kind of the point here of verse 28, right? And again, I like what Bruner writes about this. He says, this behavior, as we get to verse 28, is as incomprehensible as everything else in the story. It's, it's as incomprehensible as the 10,000 talents that that servant owed. It's as incomprehensible of the 10,000 talents that that king forgave. 
such as this man's behavior. How could anyone, having just been forgiven that amount of debt, turn to another and demand payment? This is Jesus' question to Peter. Actually, how could anyone be forgiven that amount of debt and run out of forgiveness to others, whether it be seven times or 77 times? This is Jesus' answer to Peter. If grace is the currency of the kingdom, forgiveness is its transaction towards other people. God loves forgiveness more than we can fathom, and God's love for forgiveness must be reflected in the lives of those who have received it. Not seven times, but 77 times. An infinite amount of times. What a turn. Well, I've got to see what happens next. Maybe you want to see what happens next too. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Okay, great. We kind of got that poverty of spirit here. Maybe it'll, it'll, it'll work with this servant, right? It is almost an exact echo of his own words, if you note that in Act 1. Right? The first servant actually is given the opportunity here to hear his own words, to remember what it is that was canceled for him in a few, verses back, a few verses back. This is the time to repent as you remember the grace of God towards you. Verse 30, he refused. He refused. And went and put him, the fellow servant, in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw him and, 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 or saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Here is church discipline on display. This is an enactment of the previous verses in the chapter, verses 15 to 20, of confronting someone who has sinned. Now, it is not the person who has been sinned against doing this. He's in jail. This is his friends. This is his church, right? This is his brothers and sisters doing justice, going to the aid of this person. Bruner, again, is so good here. An undisciplining Christian community is finally an unloving community. Jesus' judge not misapplied can be cover for cowardice. Jesus doesn't waste a moment to demonstrate what he has taught to his disciples. It should also be noted that the Greek word here, greatly distress, is, is, is really the word for sadden. And that really is the proper response to the sin of others in our lives. Anger is initial. We get it. And there's righteous anger. But what Jesus instructs us in is the way of sadness for that. To be saddened and grieved over the sin of others, especially as they sin towards us. We might might call that lamenting. Verse 32, then his master summoned him and said to him, this is going back to the original servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Questions in parables like this are often where the core of the parable's message is found and that is true here. If Act 1 uh, was the rehearsal of blessed are the poor in spirit, Act 2 is a reminder that blessed are the merciful and why because they will receive mercy. But woe to you, Jesus says to Peter, woe to you for the measure you use will be used against you. Again, Sermon on the Mount, all through this thing. 
Everything we are supposed to receive from this parable falls on the question from verse 33. God's love for forgiveness then must be reflected by those who have received it. It must be reflected in the lives of his people. I'm sorry, Peter. The number that you are to forgive those who have sinned against you is unending. But let that be a reminder to you of the amount of love and forgiveness that I have given you. Certainly, we could go on a tangent here and think about, wow, he's really going to need to remember this in a few chapters when he, in the most coldest of moments, betrays the Savior three times. But then is restored. God's love is infinite. His forgiveness never ends. But there's there's a responsibility with this, Peter. This whole act ends in verse 34, and anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Will this servant ever pay that 10,000 talents? No, this is not purgatory. This is eternal damnation. This is judgment. The parable has come full circle, beginning with judgment in the king settling accounts and finding a servant who could not pay. And then in bringing grace to the rescue here. Amazing, incomprehensible grace. Yet by the end, Act 2, we are back to judgment and the concluding verse. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Looking at Peter, looking at his disciples. Christian, hear this word. So my fellow, my, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I want to try to rework that for you. Get in there in the Greek and, well, this is what it really means. Move this verb around. Um, you would fire me and rightfully so. I can't rework that. I shouldn't rework that. I don't want to. As hard as it is to listen in here, What is this second act all about? Well, first, as I said, everything in this parable hangs on the question, verse 33, and should not you have had mercy of your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And Jesus is telling Peter, and he is telling the rest of his disciples, and I would say he's telling us the question of how many times we should forgive our brother and sister, right? That's the wrong question. The question is, is how has God treated you? Live there. That's what he's saying to Peter. Live there which is why God's love for forgiveness must be reflected in our lives towards others. It's how we got in this kingdom in the first place, by his grace alone. Well, Ryan, are you saying that God's forgiveness then is conditional in some way, based on whether we forgive our brothers and our sisters? By no means. We might say it is the consequence, though, the responsibility of receiving that forgiveness. Bonnard says it this way, fraternal love is not the condition of salvation. You'll never hear that preached here. Fraternal love is not the condition of salvation. It is the required consequence of it. In other words, Matthew seems to be saying, you you can't win God's forgiveness, but you can lose it. How? By refusing to offer it to others. Should we be worried? No. Stay with me. Because grace, friends, God's means of salvation, when it is true, always produces mercy. 
Matthew clearly expects God's transforming grace to do just that, transform us. So should we be worried? No. Should we be sobered by the, by, by the judgment that's coming? Yeah, we should be. And that's what this text aims to do. Jesus is teaching both grace and judgment here. And they are intended to motivate, but in very different ways. Grace and judgment want us to move into the world, as one commentary writes, with a spirit both full of security, but also a responsible fear. A mark of unreal discipleship, one commentary writes, is a cavalier disregard of judgment with the inevitable consequence of a cavalier treatment of people. Essentially what he's saying is that your thought of impending judgment is is, is proportionate to the way that you treat other people. That's what he's saying to Peter. That's what he's saying to us. On the one hand, grace leads us to the salvation. It brings us to the salvation. On the other hand, future judgment sobers us and it checks us, right? It examines us. Where in my life are the seeds then of this unforgiving servant is what the question becomes in our life as people saved by grace. I I want them out, is what the disciple says. Man, if I am am this hard-hearted or hardened to showing mercy to somebody, I need to do business with that. Jesus, help me. Poverty of spirit. Grace and judgment says God is forgiving, but he is not mocked either. And amen to that. My own personal sanity As Paul writes in Galatians 6, 7, a person reaps what he sows. Proverbs 21, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Again, Matthew 7, 2, will the measure you use, with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. This is where Jesus is bringing that teaching. This is not teaching to the pagan world who acts in a pagan way. This is teaching to the church, to believers who are acting as pagans. And he is calling his people to true discipleship, to follow him, because this is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of grace. This is the way of mercy. This is the way of forgiveness. To come back to the second point, I simply will ask you, are you reflecting this? Are we reflecting our Savior in this way? I, I, I loved um, our confession of sin that Jamie put together. I would commend you. I do this, I say this about all the bulletins. Take it with you throughout the week and meditate on it. That one especially. This is a huge topic and one that takes tons of time to work through and meditate in our own lives of where we are. But are we reflecting our Savior in this way? Are we reflecting the very forgiveness that God loves, the very forgiveness that we have been given Because if we're not, would anyone say, no big deal. It's by grace you've been saved. Jesus doesn't think so. Not that he believes that you've been saved by grace. What he's saying is it is a big deal for you to think that. For disciples to think that. This is the kingdom ethic preached by the king This is the expectation. This is how the world will know that you are Jesus' disciples. But closer to the point, this is how you know the gospel, friends, has and is getting in 
that you are ever close to the Lord and submitting to his ways, the very ways that you have been treated, which is how have you been treated? Mercifully. May we go and do likewise. Several points of application. We are running out of time. What if I can't forgive in my heart, as the text says, Ryan? Which is another word for sincere forgiveness, and it's a good question. We might spend some more time on that in the podcast. Forgiveness towards others, though, I, I want to leave, leave, answer this briefly. In our lives, cannot and is not something that we must muster up on our own. And, and this is part of Jesus' point, too. Friends, things are going to happen to you, and I already know that you can say yes, that they have happened to you, that you have no power to even move towards in and of yourself. As we heard yesterday, the flesh is weak. Forgiveness, friends, is what flows out of our hearts from another source. And what is that source in your life? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Forgiveness towards others in our lives cannot and is not something that we muster and hand over, right? Forgiveness, as Jesus is teaching, is always a product of being near to him. And so for those who might ask that question about real hard way, sins and, and ways that you have been uh, sinned against, this is the place we need to go with it. We need to go to what? The foot of the cross. And, and maybe it's sitting there with that and pleading with the Lord and, and reflecting on the ways that you have been shown mercy. Not just getting the gumption to go and offer that forgiveness, but also being healed by that, by recognizing that your Savior doesn't just sympathize, but empathizes with you. That somehow in the midst of your hurt, you, are, you have drawn closer to knowing the Lord Jesus. And while I'm not pretending at all to make sense of and to begin to tell you that it'll be okay in the sense of you, you might travel the rest of this world with scars, it will be made right, and I can promise you that. In the time between that, we take this to the cross. We give this to Jesus so that we might be people what, who are not just reminded of the mercy we've been given, but then have something to offer back in the way of compassion, in the way of release, in the way of true forgiveness, which comes at cost to ourselves, which again is suffering as your Lord and Savior has suffered for you. Are you growing in the knowledge of your sin? Because if you are, you're growing in the knowledge of the mercy you've been given. And this is what leads us in the direction to be able to offer forgiveness in hard places Ryan, there are a lot of people I have not shown mercy to. What am I supposed to do with that? Another great question. Deciding what time we have. Go to verse 27. That's your answer. God's grace is unlimited to you. Go to him. Poverty of spirit. Repent of those things. Lastly, how can I forgive from the heart? We'll look at all this later this week, but I want to come bring us back to compassion, release, and forgive. We are all in different places in this with people, and we are certainly finite people as well. Um, but you have to find a way, and the only way to do this is by going back to the foot of the cross to begin to turn that anger into sadness. This is reflecting our Savior, to begin to, to, to not hold on to this, but to release it as our Savior has done to us, to begin to actually consider the cost, which is what forgiveness is. This is not the same thing as trust. I always need to say that. 
This is not the same thing as reconciliation. I need to say that. There are people in your life that you don't need to be near and around. But that doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven them. Okay? See, lots of ways to go with this that we need to talk about. Jesus wants us to remember that the measure you use towards others is the measure that will be used towards you. He also wants us to soberly count the cost of discipleship. And maybe that's a great place to land this plane. Have we counted that cost in the way that God calls us to forgive? Receiving the treasure, receiving the kingdom of heaven is a wonderful thing. There's great cost to those who would follow Jesus. God loves forgiveness. He loves it more than we can fathom. Because he loves forgiveness, we must love it too. And it must be reflected in the lives of his people. There is no doubt, and I'll close with this, that we are a church that proclaims forgiveness. We are. If anything, I hope that Wallace continues to be and is like in the days to come that ad in the paper to Paco, right, that the Father submitted saying to any and all, who would listen? Son, daughter, all is forgiven. Come and receive. Isn't that, isn't that what we are? Isn't that what the church is? If you're a non-Christian, please hear that this morning. That's what our prayer is for you. That you would hear that message. And I pray that we would be a church and continue to be a church that does that and says that, right? But this parable is saying something else, friends. And this is to the Christians in the room. If we are going to be that church that proclaims forgiveness of sins, it will only be as clear and it will only be as lovely and it will only be as believable as we are willing to reflect it to one another and here and to our neighbors out there. Do you love mercy? Do you love forgiveness? Will you accept that as the cross that you bear in following Jesus? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, these are these are hard things. On one level, it makes perfect sense. Um, And many of us sit here and we listen, perhaps the way we feel after verse 27, this this is the Christianity that I know and love, and it is. God who forgives in ways that we can never fathom. But you call disciples to reflect this. And we are weak and we uh, fail miserably. We have been wronged and sinned against. We are hurt people. That you still call us to this. And so we're going to ask that you give us the strength to do this. And, and, and I already know what the answer to that is. And that is an extra measure, as it were, of your grace and your presence by your spirit with us. So I pray for those in this room who are certainly uh, experiencing difficulty with relationships and forgiving people. And, and that, is, uh, that, that is what it means to be human and that you would meet them in the places that they need to hear your voice of words. Uh, for those who have received mercy, you must be merciful. For those who have been wounded and carrying deep, deep wounds from those who have harmed them, would you move even closer? Would you begin the process and continue the process of what it means for you to know 
And while full restoration may not happen, that day is coming. And somehow in light of that, begins the healing effect, the the ability, the power to begin to utter the words, I forgive you. Would you do that for your glory? Would you do that in this place? That whatever people think about Wallace Presbyterian Church outside of these walls, what they cannot say is that we are not a people who love mercy, that we are not a people who love forgiveness because of the way that we love one another. Would you do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.